Hi, you're listening to audio from Rock Hill Church. To check out more resources, please visit rockhilllawrence.com. Thank you for joining us. Good morning, everyone. It is good to be here. Man, lots of Baptists in the church. Everybody loves to sit in the back, you know. I want to say thank you to Chance and the team. You know, this doesn't happen by chance, although it does. It takes a lot of preparation, a lot of prayer that goes into this. People who train their hands, their fingers, their voices. People who use the gifts of God that are given to them for this purpose. People who come and put their character on display to say to us, let's worship the Lord together. It's a good thing. And we thank God together for it. Would you say amen? I'm going to speak to you this morning from 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. Um, I, am, I am a pinch hitter, as if I know what I'm talking about. I don't. I just know the term. David was not able, because of illness, to speak to us this morning. So, and Jim is away, so I was asked to do this. And the reason I'm in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, or in 1 Thessalonians at all, it's because I've been studying as a discipline this particular book. And so when I was asked to speak, I said, well, here I am, here. So um, this is as high-tech as we're going to get with this. Um, When Paul speaks, we listen. His good character shines through his words. This is only true because one day Jesus spoke and Paul listened. And his listening never stopped. Often Paul gives direction to his churches. A common theme is, imitate me as I imitate Christ. He could only say something like this because his character, his moral character, matched his words and deeds. This is a concept that is known in the ancient writings and among the Christians as ethos. 
E-T-H-O-S. We get the word ethics from the word ethos. Ethos is a term used to describe the impact of a person's life even before they open their mouths to speak. Paul, his discipleship to Jesus, you could maybe summarize it in these three ways. He was determined and was developing in learning to be with Jesus all of his life. He was developing and determined to become like Jesus in everything that he said and did in his life. And he was determined and developed in doing whatever Jesus said to do, whatever Jesus called him to do. Paul was a true disciple of Jesus and he lived these things out. And because of that, there was an ethos about him. His character spoke to the people even before his words said anything. So let's hear him and follow his example in imitation of Jesus as he writes to this church who is um, that would receive his words gladly and be encouraged by that. His moral character, his inner life, his outer life is in conformity to Christ. And that preceded him, and when the people received his letter, they were receiving him. And his words now made sense because they were true to his character. His inner life, his outer life, in conformity to Christ, preceded him. So as a church, we are fortunate and grateful for Paul who helps us be Christ, be with Christ, become like Christ, and do as Christ did. So let me read from 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. I'm not going to do a lot with verse 1, but the main topics I want to talk to you about are from verses 2 and 3. Notice that this is a team effort. This is a letter written by a team, a team of leaders who are sending words of encouragement to a church. And I would pray that you would receive them as such. Paul, Silas, and Timothy, all three of them are designated as the senders of the letter. It's a team, team of leaders. To the church of the Thessalonians, and that church which exists in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ, 
I could go on for quite a bit of time talking about how in the scriptures it's as important that we are in God in Christ as God is in us and Christ is in us. There's an existence in God that is called Brian and George and Becky and Cindy and Carolyn. We are part of the Trinity because we exist in the Trinity. Then he greets them, the grace of God, the power, the enabling, the favor of God is upon you, and the peace, this sense of well-being that we wish for every one of you to be with you. We always thank God for all of you, mentioning you in our prayers, remembering you, bringing you to mind in our prayers. And we continually remember. We put together, we, we take members, we take parts, and we put them all together, and we have a, a large picture of who you are as a people before God and Father. What do they remember? The work produced by faith, your work of faith, your labor of love, your labor prompted by love, and your steadfast hope or your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. May God bless the reading of this word. I gave him a high-tech um, three-by-five card to put up as my outline. Here it is. That's the first point. The takeaway from the first point is cultivate an attitude of gratitude. Paul started this church back in Acts chapter 17, verses 5 to 10, and now he is encouraging them with this letter. There had been trials and tribulations at every turn. There have been, he teaches them here how to live godly lives and to work with their own hands and not to be idle as they await the sure return of Christ. Every chapter in 1 Thessalonians ends with an encouragement that Christ is coming, but meanwhile, live your life for him and do the work that you need to do. This life generates in us an attitude of gratitude. Becoming a grateful person is worth every effort we can make. It is very encouraging to others. Thanking God for others and telling them about it is a major theme in the Christian life. 
Thanksgiving, as you know, was on Jesus' lips very often. Now, here's what happens when we practice gratitude. We feel seen and heard and affirmed and appreciated and valued and nurtured. And because of that, the second thing that happens is that we now are encouraged to share that with other people. In other words, gratitude is contagious. Being grateful to God for other people because other people are grateful to God for us. A word of thank you can encourage me for days and weeks. So I'm encouraged to be liberal with thanksgiving. Um, I just thought of this song when, when I was preparing this, and, and I want you to hear it. This is Maria in The Sound of Music. Raindrops on roses and whiskers on kittens. Bright copper kettles and warm woolen mittens. Brown paper packages tied up with strings. These are a few of my favorite things. Cream-colored ponies and crisp apple strudels. Doorbells and sleigh bells and schnitzels and noodle, with noodles. Wild geese that fly with the moon on their wings. These are a few of my favorite things. Girls in white dresses with blue satin sashes. Snowflakes that stay on my nose and eyelashes. Silver white winters that melt into springs. These are a few of my favorite things. When the dog bites, when the bee stings, when I'm feeling sad, I simply remember my favorite things. And then I feel so glad. Thanksgiving is like that. The world is full of beauty. Nature and music and art of every kind. Monkeys climbing on trees and butterflies landing on flowers. Puppies and babies and Beethoven and you sit at a piano or you turn whatever on and you play a few bars of the pathétique and you get translated into a different Round. Or you sit in silence and you listen to a toccata and fugue in D minor, and the music just takes you to a different place. And then you say, Thank you. You say, Thank you for present things. You say, Thank you for old things, for dead people who are gifted by God and who encourage us by the things that they have accomplished. Make a list for you 
What are those things that make you grateful? Share it. Let it be a springboard for a conversation with non-Christians and followers and non-followers of Christ. Make it your evangelistic gratitude. Everybody's grateful for something. And we have that in common with so many people. Lots of people love puppies and monkeys and butterflies. And when you share a list of what you have and you have something in common with other people and then that is a springboard to talk about your favorite thing. Here's the third thing that happens when we practice gratitude It reframes our relationship with other people. Because now we are taking that person, and then there's God, and then we are connecting that person with God, and we are connecting with this duet, and we become a trio. We become part of the same community. It reframes our relationship with other people because we are speaking to God about another person they now stand in direct relationship to us and to God. One last thing. Gratitude is commanded in the scriptures. In Colossians chapter 3, Paul says, and be thankful in a general sense. He says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful. And be thankful. And again, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. I have a friend, his name is Jihad. Yes, he is Muslim. Jihad made it big in the oil industry. He worked for a company, then he developed his own company, and he struck it very rich, and um, he wanted to do something with his money more than just enjoy it himself. So he thought to himself, what, what can I do to bless other people? He went to South America, and he visited several orphanages and he gave some money to each of the orphanages and he said in one month I will come back and see if the situation here has changed and then I will decide whether I'm going to invest more and he did that not just in South America but in Africa as well I was staying at a guest in his home and and the Lord prompted me to say something to this young Muslim friend that I had from university days. And I said, Jihad, you remind me of the spirit of Christ when you are doing this. That became an open door to continue a conversation about how grateful he was and where does this gratitude come from? Where do all these gifts that you have that you are sharing with others come from? He still has the little card that I wrote to him. 
Almost 22 years ago, when we moved to Kansas and Nebraska, near the 4th of July, we went to a Chinese restaurant because our house wasn't even set up yet. This is the second day after we arrived here. We just parked all the boxes and then we went for lunch. We went to a Chinese restaurant in Topeka. And we were served by a young woman who obviously was only a few days, maybe a few weeks in the country. And the way we were able to order was to point to the number on the menu and to say we want this and this and this and this. The only words that she knew, Becky, were thank you, thank you. She, has, she had no other vocabulary that she could express herself with other than thank you, thank you. She brought us glasses of water and she said thank you, thank you. She brought us our food and she said thank you, thank you. Anything that she did for us, she said, thank you, thank you. And that's kind of become a family joke for us. Every once in a while, we say thank you. Thank you to each other. To be reminded that even if you don't know very much, you could always say, thank you. Don't let the sun go down on you without saying thank you to God for someone. Better yet, stop for a few seconds as often as you think of it and offer thanks. And soon you'll be saying thank you, thank you to anyone around you. Paul did. His letters are full of thank you to God for other people. Every once in a while, I make it a practice to come up right after the service and either say to the drummer or to the pianist or to chants, thank you, thank you. I don't know about you, but I think we could use that in our lives today since we are full of anxiety and all kinds of fears and pains and this is a good thing to do. Practice gratitude. Now here's the next thing that Paul talks about. As we mention you in our prayer, we thank God for you, but then we continually remember these three things about you. These three sisters that seem to hang together a lot in scriptures. Faith, hope, and love. Don't you think it's a good thing to be known by these three virtues? A working faith, a laboring love, a steady hope, That's a good thing to be searching our hearts on a regular basis, whether these virtues have become truly part of our daily living. Let me say a few things about each of those. 
I thank God and I remember and I bring to mind and I mention before God your active faith. A working faith. Not just a mental faith. Now, do you wonder what Paul had in mind when he actually said that to them? He doesn't tell us exactly what their work of faith is or what their actual prayer when he prayed for the work of faith in their lives actually is. But he knew that much about them, that there was something about what they did as a church that he could name a work of faith or a faith that works. A faith at work. A faith at work, at work, a faith at work at home, a faith at work on the soccer field, a faith at work everywhere. Faith or faithfulness or allegiance. It's the way we show our hope in God. They acted on what they knew that they were taught. In Colossians chapter 1, verses 5 and 6, it's an interesting take on, on, on this trio of virtues, where Paul says, hope is the spring, is the source out of which comes faith and love. Keep them together. I'm reminded of Mark chapter 2, verses 1 to 12, one of my favorite passages where people bring a man to Jesus. He's paralyzed, can't walk, can't do anything for himself. You can imagine what his life was like. And then they dig up the roof, they climb, dig up the roof, bring the man in front of Jesus. And Jesus says, when Jesus turns to them, or to the man, They were still up on the roof, only he is down. When Jesus saw their faith, he was seeing something that he called faith, that he named faith. What was he seeing? They were seeing people at work. They were seeing people who were convicted enough, who had enough understanding of what Jesus was about, that they would bring a man who was paralyzed in front of him enough to dig up a roof and to bring him down to Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, you are healed, your sins are forgiven. Faith, an activated faith makes people ask questions when we act on what we know, when we have faith. Everyone listens Give your allegiance to Jesus and see him at work. Activate your faith. Make your your beliefs actionable. God has a good plan for the earth and we need to spread this news around wherever we go, watching what we say and do. Sometimes individual faith wanes. That's when the community rallies around us in support like the paralytic's friends did and the Thessalonians 
dead. As a way to activate your faith on an ongoing basis, to see that your faith is actually working the mission of God in and around you, learn to bless someone on an ongoing basis. Someone around you, maybe at work. Make it a weekly kind of thing. Give them a gift, say encouraging words. Bless them by doing something for them that they are not able to do for themselves. Activate your faith. The second thing that he says is he commends them and thanks God for them and he's remembering them for their labor of love. I don't know that those two words are naturally fitting together in, in modern culture, but they do. There's two words for uh, labor. There's the word ergos, which is part of my name, gay ergos, George. So I know that word very well. It comes in, in the King James tra translation. The word George is actually translated husbandman which means a farmer, somebody who tills, who works the soil. And how appropriate is that, isn't it? You come to our place and you'll see a jungle out there. Ergos. But that's not the word that he uses here for the word labor. He uses a different word, and it's the word kopos. And the word kopos means hard labor. It means difficult labor. It's me, it means labor that causes you suffering and pain and difficulty and hardship. And it's a burden. This is the kind of love that the Apostle Paul saw in the Thessalonians with his friends and his co-laborers. And he noticed it. He noticed that they took an active stance in loving people around them and loving God and in loving people around them. It's the kind of labor that made Jesus climb on a cross. So what is Paul describing as a labor of love? Let me take you again to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 6, where Paul couldn't help but mention that again about them. My fingers are very cold. They don't want to open the page. Verse 6. But Timothy has just now come to us from you and has brought us good news about your faith and love. So Timothy had been there and had witnessed what these Thessalonians were doing, that he was able to call a work of faith and a labor of love. Unfortunately, we are not told, told exactly what they were doing. What does Paul picture these Thessalonians doing? that he would describe 
as costly, laborious love. It's the kind of love that is described in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Love does not take into account a wrong suffered. A love that is able to bear all things. A love that chooses to believe the best things we can think of other people. A love that hopes all things. A love that endures all things. So love demands our very, very best. St. Valentine kind of love is, is easy, it's romantic, and it's good to celebrate it. But godly love, as I just described it, is, is how God acts toward us. It caused him pain to love us. And yet he did it willingly, gladly, joyfully for our sake. And we are called to do the same in imitation, in following Jesus. Parents who love terminally ill children know this love. I have friends, Eric and Michelle. Eric and Michelle have Aiden, he's 13 years old. And for every day of his 13 years, Aiden has been looked after by Eric and Michelle. And it wears them down. Aiden is 13, he acts like a three-year-old. He's got all kinds of health issues probably has 20 seizures a day. Nightly, he wakes up several times and they have to make sure that he's okay. Constant doctor's visit, 24-7 care. When I was reading this passage a few weeks ago, they were the first people that came to mind. And I thank God for their labor of love. People like that have our full admiration. Many relationships demand this kind of love and, and we can't give it in our own strength. But God is able to show himself strong in our weakest points. Jesus is that kind of love for us in John 3.16, as you know. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever believes in him will live an everlasting kind of love, life and will not perish in any way. question that I have for you is this. Who will you love like that? Maybe who are you loving like that? Painfully. It's a burden. 
by way of calling, would you ask God to lead you to someone who's hard to love like that? What will it take for you? How will you love them? Steadfastness of hope. Hope, not optimism. I was going to look up the etymology of the word optimism, but I think I somehow know it intuitively. It has something with optic, which means the eye, that is seeing that things are going to change in the future, and then you become optimistic about it. Somebody can check me on that to see whether I'm right or not. It's not, optimism is not hope. Optimism says, I've got circumstances that I would love to change. And so I'm going to be optimistic about these circumstances changing. So there's nothing personal about optimism. You can be optimistic and not pessimistic and really has nothing to do with being biblical or having hope. Optimism can be like a feather, a fair weather friend. When times are good, it sticks around, and at the first time of trouble, you only see the back moving farther and farther away. We're optimistic the chiefs would do good this year, or the royals, or whoever. Hope, hope is personal. Hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is named. Hope that Jesus is he who says he is, the Son of God, God the Son. He is Jesus. He is the rescuer, the deliverer, the one who sits enthroned on his kingdom. He is Christ, the anointed one. And this hope is steadfast. Nothing on this earth can shake it. Hope has someone to keep your eye on, and it is Jesus. That's where our hope resides, not in the circumstances. It is steadfast, it is solid, it's built on a rock that never changes, that is able to do all that we are not able to do in our own strength. It is unmovable, unshakable, unbudgeable. Hope is a stone rolled away and an empty tomb and Christ appearing. And we sing about it. We used to sing about it. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not. I can't remember the rest of it. But, but solely lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. That's hope. All other stuff is sinking sand. 
So in closing, this is the kind of ethos that Paul is able to speak to the Thessalonians from. He was a person of gratitude. He was a person of hope, of love, of faith. And before he ever spoke these words, he modeled these character traits when he was with them. And so when he said these words to them, he's believable. He's believable. My questions to you are this, are these. What thoughts or feelings or images come to your mind when you imagine having a working faith, a laborious love, and a steadfast hope? How do you picture that working out in your life? What what does that look like for you? What would you name as faithful work or work or, or faith that is working? How would you describe the love that you practice toward others? Is it a giving up love or is it a laborious love? What's your hope in? Are you a hopeful person? And if you are, what's your secret? and you have discovered something about hope, I would challenge you to share it in your next Common Life group. Because everybody else needs to hear it. I need to hear it. Here's the last. Do you often occupy your mind with things to come? Hope is about expecting what is good and what comes from God is only goodness. Our full salvation awaits. Can you make that part of your reflections on an ongoing basis? What might that look like, be like? The kingdom of God, which we sang about this morning, is still to be completed. Can you give your mind to that on an ongoing basis? What might that be like? Christ is still preparing a place and expanding mansions for us. What do you picture him doing? Everyone, everything reconciled to God as it was designed to be. Everything will be restored. Since 2009, according to the CDC now, there's been a steady increase of sadness and hopelessness in our nation. In fact, sadness and hopelessness have increased 
in all 50 states. They've increased from 26% to 44%. Not quite double. On surveys done by LifeWay, those who are extremely worried and very worried amount to about 84% of our population. That's a lot of people. Those who are hopeful, extremely hopeful and very hopeful, amount to about 42%. So at least twice as many of us are hopeless or have a hopeless view of our future than not. And if the church cannot present an outlook that is hopeful, that is loving, that is faithful, What's left? You think the stock market is going to do it? You think the education system is going to do it? Or maybe the government? I think the government is it. Right? This is our work, church. Activate your faith. Love deeply with pathos and make that the ethos of your life. And hope. Be steadfast. Be solid. Jesus is he who says he is and he will do what he says he will do. Stand firm in him. Let me pray as the band comes up. Lord Jesus, thank you for these, your people. They sat, they listened, they pondered. Perhaps some were pricked in their hearts. Others rejoiced feeling affirmed for things they already do and know. As you do your work in us today and the days to come, help each one of us to be thankful often to think of ways where our faith can be activated and our love can be steady and our hope can be strong. Wherever we are, at home, at work, in our studies. Thank you for your promise to be with us. All the rest of our days. Amen.